This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in again today. Hey, I've got a terrific show lined up for you today. Joining me in segments two and three is the head of research at Gold Money, returning guest, Mr. Alistair McLeod. I caught up with Alistair from his offices in the UK this past week and talked to him about the U.S. elections, talked to him about Federal Reserve policy, and uh, what's the end game here, and what does it mean for you and your money? It was a terrific conversation with Mr. McLeod, and I know you're not going to want to miss it. Hey, for those of you that haven't yet gone to the website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, and downloaded the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates app or checked out some of the free resources available there, I would encourage you to do that. You know, after spending literally decades in the financial industry, one of the lessons that I've learned is that no one cares as much about your money as you do. That being the case, make sure you educate yourself and our website is there to help. Again, the website is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. Go check it out. Uh, You can listen to the podcast version of this program there. You can get our weekly market update webinars as well as the weekly newsletter. You know, Peter Schiff, a past guest here on the program, asked a very interesting question this past week. He asked, if COVID-19 didn't hurt the stock market, why should a vaccine help? You know, stocks rallied this past week on the announcement that Moderna Uh, suggested they had experienced success in a coronavirus vaccine trial. And Peter said, why is the market rallying on this news? Well, I would argue the market's not rallying due to this news. I would argue the market is rallying due to the easy money policies of the Federal Reserve. Peter actually makes a couple of very interesting points, and I'm going to quote from a piece that he offered. Because of all the cheap money, because of the artificially low interest rates, because of the money printing, that's what caused the market to go up. I agree with Peter completely. I think that traders recognize that even if COVID-19 goes away, that the cheap money is here to stay. Because if traders believe that the end of COVID also meant the end of 0% interest rates and quantitative easing, which is central bank speak for money creation or money printing, whenever you hear the term quantitative easing, what you're really hearing is that money is being created literally out of thin air. So Peter said, if traders believe that the end of COVID also meant the end of 0% interest and the end of money printing, to paraphrase that statement, Stocks would not be rallying on a COVID vaccine. They would be getting killed on a COVID vaccine because the vaccine would kill all the stimulus. Isn't that an interesting perspective? And you know, I don't know how many of you saw the story, but when Pfizer made the announcement that they had also developed a vaccine with a very high success rate, On the day the announcement was made, 
the chair of Pfizer sold over 60% of the stock he owned in the company. Again, you have to ask, why? Well, the easy money is likely not going away anytime soon. In fact, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell and the Federal Reserve is the central bank of the United States. And the Federal Reserve, for those of you that are new listeners, is a private group of bankers. It's not a government agency. A private group of bankers controls monetary policy. Now, the chair of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, this past week said that the central bank cannot end emergency measures too soon, and he called on Congress to pass additional fiscal stimulus. So here is the chair of the Federal Reserve saying, Congress, pass more stimulus so we can print more money. Peter also had an interesting take on this. He said the reason he's saying this, he referring to Mr. Powell, the reason he's saying this is because he knows there's no turning back. And I think the markets know that we've sold our monetary souls to the devil and there's no getting out of this deal. That is the predicament. Because of the sheer volume of the money printing and the QE and the 0% interest rates, that monetary policy in the face of COVID was so extreme and so reckless, the economy has now been given such a massive jolt of this monetary heroin, there's no dialing back the dosage. Well, this year, the Fed has created $3 trillion out of thin air, literally out of thin air. And as I'll talk about with my guest in the next segment, Mr. Alistair McLeod, the deficit this next year could exceed that. If the deficit, the operating deficit, the shortfall between spending and tax receipts exceeds tax receipts, you have a problem. When Mr. Schiff describes this policy as monetary heroin and there's no dialing back the dosage, he's right. We have so much debt now, Schiff said, and the markets are now in such a massive bubble that the Fed wouldn't dare risk pricking it. So are we to conclude that there's no way out? Well, as the events of 2020 have unfolded, I have embraced a bit of advice offered by Arthur Conan Doyle. He said that once you've eliminated the impossible, you're left with the truth. So let's look at this. If the Fed stops printing the federal government cannot operate and would have to cut spending. That would result in a deflationary collapse. Are they going to allow that? Probably not. So the Fed's only other choice is to continue to print, continue to subsidize the operating deficit because the ugly consequences that come from that 
are likely going to be further down the road than a massive deflationary collapse. Schiff says this, the Fed is not going to take away the punch bowl. I agree completely. If the Fed was going to respond to the startup of the economy by winding down its stimulus, if the Fed was going to start raising interest rates and shrinking its balance sheet, that would override the growth of earnings that would result from the economy starting up again because of the COVID vaccine. So what the markets believe now they're going to get, they're going to have their cake and they're going to eat it too. But the economy is going to come back because of the vaccine because the bubble is now so big, the Fed and the Fed created such a massive addiction, we're going to continue to get COVID monetary policy even after COVID is no longer an issue. That likely means prices are going to surge. In the last segment of today's program, I am going to give you the advice that a billionaire is offering, Mr. Malone, and what he's doing with his money. There's a lesson there. That's in the last segment of today's program. I'll return with my special guest, Mr. Alistair McLeod. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me once again on today's program is returning guest, Alistair McLeod. Uh, Alistair, uh, longtime listeners will recognize as the head of research at Gold Money. And I would certainly encourage you to check out Alistair's work and get his perspective Uh, You can go to goldmoney.com, and uh, under the Research tab, you can find his articles uh, titled Gold Money Insights. Uh, And Alistair, welcome back to the program. Uh, Thank you for asking me, Dennis. So, Alistair, as you know, here in the United States, we have, uh, uh, I don't know how how you would uh, perceive this in the U.K., but... We have certainly some questions around the U.S. election. Uh, how is it being reported on in the U.K.? And uh, give us your take. Well, first of all, how it's being reported. I think our uh, uh, mainstream media is really following your mainstream media insofar as I can uh, detect what that's saying. I mean, basically, um, our mainstream media thinks that Biden has won the election and uh, that uh, Trump is just, um, you know, just creating difficulties, uh, to put it simply. Um, My take on it is slightly different. Um, There is a procedure that has to be gone through. It is not that the mainstream media elects the president. It is meant to be voters. But unfortunately, it appears that um, the voting procedures uh, and the counting um, are really, um, if you like, inter- interfered with. I mean, we read, if you, know, if you care to look for it, there are all sorts of stories about how the equipment is foreign and um, uh, it, it can be hacked and, um, and all the rest of it. And certainly things appeared to be happening in the counts of some of the marginal states, uh, which certainly suggested that there was some uh, fiddling of the figures going on. Um, so I think this is, this is a, a problem that is likely to continue. I must say that um, uh, the idea of American democracy, I think, has taken a pretty bad knock over all this. Um, if whoever it is um, has managed to interfere with the, elec- uh, with the uh, election returns, then that is a very bad thing indeed. I mean, it, it would indicate that 
the electoral process in America is uh, no better than some of the electoral processes in places like Africa or Russia or wherever, where whoever <laughs> the system decides uh, is going to win, wins. Um, and uh, voters, what voters do basically is um, they don't even endorse anything. The figures are, are, are altered um, uh, to, to end up with the result that the establishment wants. And that is the suspicion. And I think it's the sooner this is dispelled, the better, one way or the other. Yeah, certainly agree with that. Well, Alistair, let's talk about uh, uh, a couple of the, the pieces that you just wrote. Um, one, uh, you, you, you wrote a piece titled The Consequences of Budget Deficits for International Trade. And uh, you, you begin the article by just stating that um, no one is considering uh, the consequences for trade imbalances. And uh, just give our listeners a bit of an overview as to first of all, you know, budget deficits. Uh, what what do you mean by that? And then and then let, let's get into your article a bit, if we could, please. Yes, certainly. Um, uh, when I refer to a budget deficit, what I'm talking about is the government's uh, uh, excess spending over its tax income, and that is financed uh, inevitably by uh, the sale of bonds. And these days, uh, with really zero interest rates or um, uh, you know, sort of interest rates of less than one percent, even on a ten-year bond. Um, the general public are not really involved with this, so this is why there is so much uh, quantitative easing going on. The Fed, in order to fund the deficit, has to buy government debt itself. Now, the net effect of this is that the government ends up issuing debt which it then owns through one of its agents. So the idea that this is actually extra debt in the in, in the private sector is wrong. But the other side of it is the bad news, and that is that it effectively is financed by monetary inflation. So, so that's um, uh, the budget deficit on the one side. What I was pointing to in the article was the fact that unless you get a change in the savings rate, the budget deficit will be reflected in a trade deficit. And that's what I mean by that is, that is, is a deficit on uh, um, the uh, uh, import, you know, the export and imports of goods. The balance of payments being slightly different because that basically balance of payments um, will balance if the foreigners, when they receive dollars, if uh, there is a trade deficit, uh, actually hang on to those dollars and reinvest them within the uh, American um, monetary system. Uh, and that basically has been happening so far, which is why uh, America has been able to run not just a budget deficit, but also a trade deficit, because the foreigners, in effect, have been buying much of the U.S. treasuries at the end of the day and agency debt and so on and so forth, which has kept the thing uh, more or less in balance. Now, the result of that is that foreigners now own approximately $27 trillion in financial securities and uh, deposits in the banks. The deposits in the banks plus... Um, uh, 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 you know, sort of short-term bills amount to around about 5.6 trillion. The balance being, if you like, um, holdings of uh, U.S. Treasuries, agency debt, equities, and so on and so forth. So the foreigners do have an awful lot of dollars, and they probably have too much, too many dollars for the deteriorating trade conditions. I mean, obviously, if you're a 
foreigner and you are exporting to America, you will hold a dollar reserve and that will that reserve will depend very much on uh, uh, how you view your trade to be developing. If you think it's going to expand, then you'll tend to hold more dollars than if you think it contracts, in which case you probably release some dollars. Now that trading is contracting, there is a problem because that balance of payments uh, is not really going to be there. And not only that, but if you look at the uh, situation with, uh, you know, the twin deficit situation with the U.S. government running a um, budget deficit, and uh, that is now running at a phenomenal level. I mean, I think in the current year, it wouldn't be too surprising to see that deficit um, in the order of $4 trillion. Now, unless the American citizens start saving like fury, which I would have thought is extremely unlikely, then that is going to be matched by uh, a deficit on the balance of trade. So what happens then? I mean, this is just um, you know, a horrific situation. If, uh, 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 let's say, President Trump gets re-elected because you know, he's, he's taken the simplistic view that uh, trade is, is uh, just a matter of foreigners, if you like, uh, exploiting the American consumer, um, that is really going to make things extremely difficult for him if he, is, if he, if he actually is returned as, as president. What Biden's view on this is, I wouldn't know. Um, that would have, we would have to evolve. But there's no doubt that this large budget deficit is going to lead to a similar trade deficit. And uh, the only way in which that can be stopped is to raise tariffs, which basically means raising prices, or indeed putting import controls on goods coming in. If that happens, then basically the only way in which the thing can be recon reconciled is for the rate of um, price inflation in America to literally start soaring. So we have very difficult times ahead. And I think this is why it's so important to understand uh, the relationship between the budget deficit, how it is financed, and also the trade deficit. So, Alistair, when, 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 you, when, when you, you, you provide that explanation, that's obviously alarming to our listeners, many of whom are dreaming of a comfortable, stress-free retirement. Uh, so w what does this end game look like? I mean, we've talked in, in past interviews, uh, but for our listeners maybe that, that haven't heard you before, does this ultimately result in, in hyperinflation because you know the, the Fed has no choice but to try to absorb all this? Um, well, yes, it's slightly more complicated than you've put it. Um, it. The situation is ending in hyperinflation. In fact, if you define uh, hyperinflation properly, um, uh, and this is something that nobody really defines, but basically it is an expansion of the quantity of money which becomes completely unstoppable. Now, if you accept that as a definition of hyperinflation, then America is already there. And the reason I'll say, I'll just give you an example why. Um, in the last, um, the second half of your last fiscal year, ending end September, the um, financing of the budget deficit, um, well, the financing actually of government, of, of all government spending, was more through inflation, in other words, the Fed doing QE, than through uh, um, tax receipts. So already you're more dependent on inflationary financing than uh, um, uh, tax receipts. Now, that is a situation which is likely to deteriorate even further in the current financial year. We can see there's already a second wave of the coronavirus. 
Um, and uh, that is basically bankrupting businesses up and down the country, as uh, you know, which, as far as I can see, isn't actually reported sufficiently. But I'm sure that um, your listeners are very much aware of local stores going out of business, um, uh, manufacturers going out of business, particularly small ones, uh, shopping malls basically abandoned, the whole thing. I mean, it's a very, very severe downturn that we're facing. And before the coronavirus uh, came upon us, we had also something which was very concerning, and that is that the um, situation uh, um, really at the beginning of this year was looking very similar to the situation uh, on Wall Street in 1929. Uh, at that time, we had the end of, the, of, a, of a period of bank credit expansion, and uh, banks started contracting credit, trying to call in loans, and the result was a load of bank bankruptcies, um, really from about 1930 onwards. Um, and uh, the second thing is that uh, the market was actually turned um, uh, by the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act, and that was October 1929, uh, when uh, the uh, U.S. stock market had its first major collapse. It rallied after that. Um, uh, it recovered after that. And uh, I think it was around about May or June uh, 1930, President Hoover then signed uh, the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act into law. Now, we've had a similar situation uh, with... Um, uh, the tariff war, if I can call it that, between America and China, um, the two largest economies in the world, uh, jacking up tariffs against each other. It's so similar. We've, uh, this has, again, come, and, come at the end of a period of bank credit expansion. So the setup we have today is just so similar to the setup that collapsed Wall Street between 1929 and 1932, when Wall Street lost, well, when the Dow lost uh, 90% of its value from top to bottom. Of course, the big change nowadays is that in those days, uh, prices were priced effectively in gold through the dollar because there was a, uh, um, a gold standard at which uh, dollars were exchangeable at $20.67 uh, to, um, uh, to the ounce. Now, uh, this time, uh, we don't have the gold standard. We have just pure fiat currency. So, uh, we won't see necessarily um, uh, stocks behaving absolutely in parallel with losing 90% of its value um, measured in dollar terms because the dollar itself uh, loses purchasing power. It uh, does not have the anchor of gold uh, to keep it up. Um, but nonetheless, the pattern from the top in 1929 to that very sharp fall is very much uh, reflected in what happened um, uh, this year between uh, early January, when the market peaked, and then we had a one-third fall in the S&P to um, around about uh, mid-March, and from that point it started recovering. Now, that actually tracks very, very closely what happened in the early stages of the Wall Street crash. So, it's a, I mean, as a historian, as a monetary historian, I find the thing fascinating, but the implications are really quite horrifying. Well, we're chatting today with Mr. Alistair McLeod. Alistair is the head of research at Gold Money. You can uh, learn more about Gold Money and read Alistair's work at goldmoney.com and click on the research tab. I will continue my conversation with Mr. Alistair McLeod when RLA Radio returns.
I'm Dennis Tuberg, and you are listening to RLA Radio. I have the pleasure of chatting once again today with Mr. Alistair McLeod. Alistair is the head of research at Gold Money and, uh, you know, a very, very, very bright uh, monetary historian. And, uh, Alistair, nice to have you back on the program again today. And for our listeners maybe that are not familiar with your organization, can you fill them in a bit? Yes, of course, Dennis, and thank you for asking me. Um, Gold money basically stores uh, gold and silver and platinum group metals on behalf of our customers on a custody basis. And the important thing is that all metal is stored in secure vaults, vaulting companies. We were members of the London Bullion Market Association. We offer a number of uh, different jurisdictions. So an American, for example, might like to store his gold or silver in somewhere like uh, uh, Switzerland or Singapore, uh, somewhere outside the banking system and beyond the immediate reach of the government. And I think those are two very important things. So, uh, I mean, it's a business which has been going now since uh, 2002. It was founded by James Turk, who some of you will have um, uh, heard of. And uh, James is still very much involved with the business. Um, It's now run out of Canada. Um, and we have offices both in Toronto. In fact, we have three offices. We have Toronto, we have Jersey, and also we have um, uh, um, Shift Gold in New York, which deals in coins and so on and so forth. So um, that's what we do. Uh, it's secure storage of, of metals so that um, if you want sound money, if you want to have some sound money as part of your asset mix, then gold money can provide you with that facility. All right. Well, thanks for that explanation, Alistair. And I want to go back, if I could, and just revisit something that we talked about in the first segment. And uh, I'm going to attempt to uh, paraphrase uh, uh, the the concept that you related to us. And that is that, you know, we, we have a bit of a different metric, if you will, today than we did in 1929, in that in 1929, the dollar was still tied to gold. So when we saw this you know, initial decline in in stocks, uh, it it was more accurately measured than perhaps it would be today when the dollar is losing value, which of course, you know, would nominally inflate the price of of stocks. So um, if if I've paraphrased that uh, correctly, um, you also wrote a recent article about the fact that this really kind of skews economic data, and you referred in particular to gross domestic product or economic output. Um, could you comment? Uh, yes, of course. Yes, no, you put it very well, Dennis. Um, with respect to GDP, all um, GDP doesn't actually tell you anything other than um, the total number of transactions that have occurred in a year by monetary value. It doesn't tell you whether those transactions are good, bad, needed, not needed, uh, artificial, whatever. It doesn't tell you anything about economic progress. And all it does tell you is how much extra money has been injected into the economy. So, for example, if in year one your GDP is um, a figure, let's say, a trillion dollars, and uh, you increase the quantity of money by 10%, then all you're doing, actually, at the end of the day, is you're increasing GDP from a trillion to one trillion, um, uh, ten billion dollars. I mean, it's all it is is just adding on top. Now, it doesn't actually tell you anything about the underlying economy. Now, the reason this is important is that we do have um, 
a mixture of uh, an American economy, which is uh, sinking really quite rapidly under the mixture of COVID and the cyclical uh, effect of the contraction of bank lending. Um, and uh, the, 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 as a result of the um, uh, trade wars between America and China over the last two years, the American economy is very heavily burdened. Now, the way in which the, the, um, uh, the Fed is, uh, deals with this is it injects more money into the economy. Um, so what that will do in terms of the GDP numbers is it will make nominal GDP look as if it is either stable or rising at a time when the economy in real terms is actually contracting. And you can't measure it in real terms by using a deflator such as the consumer price index because the consumer price index has been itself corrupted. And this goes all the way back to uh, the 1980s when indexation became a real cost for not only American, the American government, but also other governments. So the tendency to, in, to um, uh, index prices becoming a real burden on government meant that the statistical departments had uh, an imperative to try and reduce the apparent effect of price inflation to reduce that cost on government. And the result is that we have a consumer price index which is hardly rising, yet in America there are two different providers of information on this. You've got shadowstats.com, who basically have taken out all the changes since 1980 to come up with a true figure, and they say that the rate of price inflation is running something like 8 or 9%. And then there is a second um, uh, measure of price inflation, and that is the Chapwood Index, and that is something that happens twice a year. And what they do is they take 500 commonly consumed items, and this varies from I don't know, you know, baked beans, if you like, uh, to um, gardening services and things like that. The sort of thing a normal American would expect to buy in the normal course of events. 500 of those items in 50 different cities, and they come up with a figure which indicates that price inflation is currently running at closer to 10%. So quite obviously, this, uh, um, you know, to see the CPI saying that it's 1.7% is completely wrong. And uh, the corruption of statistics, I'm afraid, is the whole way through every government statistical department. But the point about GDP, returning to your question, is that it is simply the total, the, if you like, the monetary total of transactions in a given period, usually a, a year. And if you debase the currency, obviously that figure goes up. And that's really what, I've been, what I was referring to. And, and Alistair, uh, after reading your article, uh, I went back and just, uh, for, for one of my client newsletters, went back and just uh, priced GDP and gold at different time frames, looking at over the last 20 years and 40 years and 50 years. And if you take a look at GDP priced in gold at various times, I mean, there's a very good argument from my perspective to make that we've not had economic growth in a very long time. We've had economic contraction. Uh, what, what would your, uh, your perspective be on that? Well, that's interesting. I haven't actually done that measurement, but I can imagine the result uh, that you have just said is actually correct. But if we go on the Chapwood uh, uh, index figures, then obviously, um, with uh, price inflation having been roughly um, sort of 9 to 
for the last 10 years, you can see that a nominal growth in GDP measured by um, you know, the government statisticians of, say, um, you know, 3 or 4%, uh, which they then deflate by the CPI, so you end up with something like 2 to 3%, is obviously completely wrong. It's, it, it, is, uh, you know, it is absolute nonsense. And yes, that does mean that the U.S. economy has been in a contractionary phase in real terms for some considerable time. So I would agree with that, looking at it from a different aspect. So, Alistair, let's, uh, we have time for just maybe one more uh, topic of discussion here. Uh, my interviews with you always go so quickly or seem to. Um, you know, when, when, when we talk about this, uh, you know, going back to our listeners that are looking at how do you secure your finances, how do you potentially have a comfortable retirement, um, what do you see as the end game here, and what kind of advice would you give someone? Are we going to see a currency reset? Are we going to see the quantitative easing stop and we're going to go through a, a deflationary reset like we did during the, the 1930s? How do you view the end game and what kind of advice would you be giving? Well, uh, funnily enough, uh, the article which will be posted later today, and this is uh, uh, Thursday, um, uh, I have covered this particular point about resets because they're all in the news at the moment. Um, I think that any attempt by the government to reset uh, the system will fail. Uh, the only reset that will work is for government to uh, use their gold reserves. Uh, and in America, allegedly, you've got over 8,000 tons, if that hasn't sort of disappeared. <laughs> that's, that's another topic to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Well, let us, assuming, let us assume it's there. I mean, basically, uh, the U.S. government has the means to back its currency with gold. And by back it, I mean not just say, you know, we've got some gold and so our currency is fine, but actually to have gold coins circulating with the uh, what we would call gold substitutes. In other words, the paper that represents it, the digital entry in, uh, uh, in, in uh, uh, your bank account should be fully transferable into physical gold in the form. So you'd have coins circulating with your gold. Now, that is possible. Um, the problem is that there is no intellectual understanding of it within government of why this should be the case. And furthermore, because China and Russia are gold rich and uh, have certainly undeclared gold uh, monetary reserves, if you like, um, uh, that would hand an awful lot of power to um, America's enemies in Asia. So you can see that there will be huge resistance to doing that. But it is the only thing that will stop um, the collapse of not just the dollar, but every other paper currency which is tied to it. As far as listeners are concerned, uh, I would strongly recommend that uh, they look at having some sound money, and the sound money is only really gold, possibly silver, uh, um, uh, as part of their asset mix, uh, if you like, as an insurance policy against this happening. And I have to say that from my analysis that I've, uh, you know, the various uh, things I've looked at, uh, the situation is actually deteriorating really quite rapidly. And, and Alistair, uh, we have just another maybe a minute and a half left. I mean, if, if, assuming we, do, we don't get this, this, re, this reset, to use that term, that, that now currency is, is backed by gold, um, and, and they try to bridge the gap by more money printing, I mean, isn't, isn't either outcome going to be bullish for metals? 
Well, it's, it's bound to be. I mean, we're already seeing metal prices rising. You're already seeing Bitcoin's price rising. I mean, that, I'm, I'm not suggesting that Bitcoin means an awful lot other than, uh, you know, sort of people are beginning to um, get into it, having been completely out of it. Um, I would not emphasize Bitcoin's value, if you like, in any real sense. But um, it, what it does indicate is that uh, people are beginning to understand that um, there you've got Bitcoin, where the amount of Bitcoins to be issued in circulation is very, very restricted. While at the same time, the amount of paper money coming into circulation is expanding extremely rapidly. So it's that uh, difference uh, in, in uh, uh, the background to paper money and Bitcoin, which at the moment is partly responsible for driving Bitcoin's price. Um, and we've also seen uh, money um, uh, going into the stock market. People want uh, stocks rather than bank, bank deposits. And that tells me that people's uh, preferences for holding money is actually shifting against money. And that is the thing that will undo the currency, uh, particularly as we get new tranches of um, monetary expansion, because the Fed is going to have to increase the pace of its QE to pay uh, for the increased budget deficit, which arises from COVID, uh, the second wave of COVID. And then, of course, you've got that um, economic background that I was describing. That has got to be financed as well. So I think what you're going to see is a rapid expansion of the quantity of money. And sooner or later, people are going to realize what's going on, and they're going to want to get out of unbacked government currencies. Well, my guest today has been Mr. Alistair McLeod. You can learn more about his work and read his articles, which I would highly recommend, at goldmoney.com. I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thanks to Mr. Alistair McLeod for joining us on today's program. In the first segment of today's program, I talked about a piece that past guest here on the program Mr. Peter Schiff wrote this past week, and in it, he asked a very interesting question. He said, if COVID-19 didn't hurt the stock market, why should a vaccine help? And Peter concluded, and I certainly agree, that the Fed really has no way out. To quote Peter, he said, the Fed's not going to take away the punch bowl. The Fed's not going to take away the easy money. In fact, should COVID go away, it's his conclusion that COVID monetary policy is here to stay. So easy money is here to stay. Well, there is a billionaire by the name of Mr. Malone. Mr. Malone appeared on a CNBC program this past week. Mr. Malone is the chairman of Liberty Media, and he made some comments that even made David Faber, the CNBC host, not know what to say. Now, if you watched a lot of these interviews, you see that these interviews are usually conducted with permabulls on stocks. Well, Malone was a bit disappointing because he, echoing what Peter Schiff said, had this to say. We've survived this because of enormous 
fiscal and monetary stimulus. And I've got to believe, believe this will lead to devaluation of currencies, that hard assets will increase in value in currency terms. I'm not sure I'm going to call this inflation, but it'll look like and feel like inflation. Now, interestingly, many analysts and pundits, many of which don't understand how this stuff works and how the relationship between currencies work, quote, the U.S. dollar index. And the U.S. dollar index is holding its own. The trouble is using the U.S. dollar index as your metric will lead you to a false conclusion. See, if you look at the U.S. dollar index, which measures the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar against the, the currencies of the six major trading partners of the United States, you see that it's stable. But the U.S. dollar is a fiat currency. It's not backed by anything tangible. It's currency by fiat or by government decree, and it's holding its own against other fiat currencies. So the idea that the dollar is stable versus other fiat currencies is really an illusion because all these currencies are debasing together. Now, if you want to see evidence of this, look at the U.S. dollar index from the end of 2018 when the stock market crashed and the Fed started down this easy money path. And since the end of 2018, you see that for the most part, the U.S. dollar index has been stable, with the exception of a spike where the U.S. dollar's purchasing power increased against the other fiat currencies uh, that are in the dollar index measurement. However, since that time frame, for those of you that have been purchasing precious metals, as we've been talking about here on the program for quite a long time, you'll see that the U.S. dollar versus gold has absolutely collapsed. So what is Malone suggesting? Well, first of all, he said, it's hard for me to believe that this policy won't be followed by a period of currency devaluation. Arguably, when looking at the price of gold, that's already taking place. So what's he doing? Here's what Mr. Malone suggested. I have been trying to invest or diversify into hard assets. You know, I think things I bought last year, I bought substantial interests in multifamily housing, primarily in the United States. I've bought irrigated farms because commodities were cheap and farms were at a low cycle in value. And I've always wanted to have some irrigated farming, so now I'm growing potatoes. Malone is not investing in stocks. He's investing in potatoes, tangible assets. There's a lesson there. If you've not yet visited our website, Retirement Lifestyle Advocates, let me close the program this week by encouraging you to do that. As I said in the first segment, one of the lessons that I have learned after working in this business for decades is that no one cares as much about your money as you do. And if you dream of a comfortable, stress-free retirement, there are resources and an app on the website, Retirement Lifestyle Advocates, uh, that I know will be of value to you. We work hard to give you value and give you 
a different perspective. So again, go check out the website at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. You can download the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates app there as well, which will give you access to our weekly newsletter titled Portfolio Watch. It'll also give you access to our weekly update webinars. So a lot of free information. I would encourage you to take advantage of it. That's all the time I have for this week. Hope you have a great week and a happy Thanksgiving.